0: pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, home prices seem incredibly high in many areas of the country. Are we headed for a crash? I'll let you know what I think. Then after your questions, I'm talking about the job market. Some employers are absolutely getting desperate to hire you right now. So there's a new report out that says that in a lot of major markets in the United States, homes are overpriced at least 10%. And people hear this and they get really worried that they're going to end up in a position where you buy now and you're going to end up upside down in that home, uh, Fitch, which is, uh, they're a bond rating agency among other things. And they say that typically around the country homes are overpriced 6%, but the number of major Metro areas, 10% or more. The home prices, all right, Krista, you're in the soundproof booth. Okay. (laughs) You haven't seen any of these numbers How much are home prices up in the last eight years? In eight years. What percent have home prices? Normal year, home prices would go up about one and a half percent, which over eight years would be 12% increase in value.
1: Oh, I would think like 30%. 40.
0: 40. Wow. And home prices are an all time peak, even above the extreme bubble of the speculative era that came to a crashing end in 2007. And I saw an item on MarketWatch that the number of people searching this phrase on Google, when is the housing market going to crash, has risen 2,450% in the last month, which talks to how much anxiety people are having about the real estate market. I've had agents ask me, like I have some kind of magic crystal ball, how bad's the crash going to be? So here's the story. We are not going to have a housing crash. Not going to happen. The circumstances are totally different than they were in the uh, banking scandals and the real estate crash that went from 7 to 12. Number one Do you know in 2007, we had a massive surplus of housing units in the United States? Money was being lent so freely, and deals were being funded that nobody actually thought were going to work, and then they were selling off the risk of the funding to other parties, the suckers, and it led to the uh, banking scandals, the financial crash, the housing crash, blah, 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 And people were buying houses, no money down, that they never intended to occupy, that they were holding just till the speculative fever in the market in the mid 2000 cycle. What do we call the mid aughts? Is that what you call that period? Um, In the mid aughts, that the momentum, it was a momentum trade. And Las Vegas, Phoenix, uh, certain other cities crashed and crashed hard when the music stopped. Uh, Atlanta crashed very hard. I'm trying to think how many different places. I mean, this was the first time we had a national housing crash, but certain cities, particularly in the south and the mountain states, were affected the worst. So this time we don't have a massive housing surplus. In fact, we have a housing shortage. This is a supply constrained market as an economist would say we have a shortage of homes for willing buyers and that has pushed these prices up and it's going to take a while for inventories to rebuild for a number of reasons i've talked about in the past so we do not have a situation that will lead to anything like what happened seven to twelve however there's uh Another pointy-headed economist term, reversion to mean, which means you can't outrun people's ability to afford something forever. And there will be a time that housing price appreciation will slow, stop, or slightly reverse over this decade. Uh, Inventories will build. And in fact, last month, something happened that may have been a statistical error but something that has never happened since modern statistics of housing started being kept. The average cost of a used home in the United States for the first time ever exceeded the average price of a new home. Unprecedented. Uh, It just shows the great distortions with the shortage of homes posted for sale. So here's the recipe for you If I just depressed you no end as a potential home buyer, gave you a headache, remember if you now want to go get uh, acetaminophen or uh, what's the other one, ibuprofen, (laughs) make sure they're generic. Generic. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, you got to make sure they're generic. Uh, No Advil, no Tylenol, way too expensive. Anyway, um, your ownership cycle is the key metric here. Think about even people who bought just at the peak in 2006. If they stayed in the house long enough, they saw the values trough in the worst speculative markets and fully recover by mid this decade, last decade, or a little past that. I mean, it's the cycle of ownership is the key overcoming the anxiety of that Google search, when's the crash coming, is normally I tell you from a raw economic standpoint, when you buy a home, you should intend to keep it seven years. In this cycle of the housing market, that needs to be a minimum 10 years. Now, if making money or not losing money on a house is not a priority for you, then just buy one with no intended ownership cycle. But if you don't want to have the potential of leaving the closing table owing money when you sell a home or any circumstance like that, if you buy in 21, you need to think about it as a house you'll own till 31 or later, and then you'll be a-okay. And if you are a seller and you're at a point in your life that you could sell, pocket the one-time gain, Maybe become a renter. That's how you really hold on to that score of making the big money from your sale.
1: All right. Speaking of that, Clark Andrew in California has a question for you. Hey, Clark, you seem to have unloaded a lot of real estate because it was so vo- fully valued. Have you pared down to just a primary residence now and not even any vacation homes? You told us how you sold properties before the last housing crash, and use the money to buy back in once the market corrected. Are you hoping to do that again, or are you planning on buying stocks with it once the market corrects?
0: So um, I had at one time nine properties, uh, almost all investment, and now I have three. One investment, a personal residence, a condo, and a vacation home. I'm still obviously overprivileged, but I have used the opportunity of the big run-ups in value using the standard uh, return on investment with real estate property. You can use any uh, ROI formula for real estate, and those properties that I had as rentals no longer really made sense as rentals. So I've only held the one Um and sold all the others, and pared back the involvement of real estate in my life. Now, I am, as if you've been a long-time listener to me, you know I'm not into timing the market, but I am into having idle cash available during times that markets are inflated. So I have, for me, an unusually large cash position, where normally I'm I'm close to 100% invested. Right now, I have nearly 20% of my assets earning basically nothing in a municipal money market fund. Keeping my powder dry, as they say, waiting for a cycle to turn, and there being good opportunities. I've also very heavily pivoted, and I'm not giving this as investment advice because it's getting pretty esoteric, but in my own life, I've pivoted very heavily to investing outside the United States uh, in equities and bonds because the U.S. stock market is, in my opinion, very richly valued, and the same is not true for a lot of overseas markets. But getting into that kind of game, uh, sector rotation, is something that you have to really pay close attention and be a pretty experienced investor. And I could still turn out to be wrong on any of this, but that's how I'm handling this stage of the economic and investment cycle. And
1: this is from Chuck in Maine. Clark has given advice on moving both local and cross country, but I was wondering if he has an opinion on the pod like moving options where a pod is dropped off at your location, you fill it and they pick it up and deliver it. We're planning a long-distance move and thought the pod's ability to store seems like a good option. However, online reviews are mixed. Some are terrific, some are lousy, and only a few are average. Determining risks seems to be the hardest part of evaluating the pod options. Thanks for any insight.
0: So this is a very popular option now with people who are not worried about their backs, um, where you load your own possessions into a pod and you're paying only for transport of your goods, not for loading and unloading. And I see it as a superior option for people who are not worried about physical injury versus traditional movers. Traditional movers are having the worst problem maybe in their history, finding a reliable supply of workers. I mean, think about it. It's, it's really, really hard work, brutal work, and can be physically taxing. If day after day, all year long, all you do is lift and load and unload heavy possessions of someone, it can also be dangerous. So doing it yourself and paying a company simply for transporting the pods is, I think, a very, very smart Alternative. Now the reviews you see, the generally the greatest complaints are when things out of your pod get stolen or that the delivery schedule is not honored. And so you're gonna have to read a lot of reviews and make your best educated guess. The other way you might transport your goods is go to uship.com, the letter uship.com and You hire a company specifically for transport of a variety of things, including vehicles across state lines across the country, and goods as well.
1: All right, I'm going to squeeze another one in here from Doug in Georgia. I'm approaching the end of a COVID-related mortgage forbearance. However, I'm also interested in selling my home. Should I extend my forbearance and then sell, or should I settle the forborne amount, 16500 back into the unpaid mortgage amount and then sell?
0: Uh, You may want to hold on to that money before you uh, pay off the forbearance. The reason is when you sell your home, you may have repairs that you have to do to the property, and doing those repairs, you may need to have some money available to do them. And if you pay off all the forbearance, you may not have the money to do the repairs that are needed. So that's why... If it were me, I would hold on to that money and know that the forbearance will be paid off at the closing table along with the remainder of the mortgage balance. But it's that's not an automatic, uh, clear answer, but I just want to make sure you have enough money that you're able to get to the closing table to deal with whatever the inspection report might find that you have to deal with. And coming up next... I wanna talk about a dramatically improving job market across the United States. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news,
1: Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: You know, you drive around most any metro area in the United States, And there's a phantom that has reemerged, the help wanted sign. And the help wanted signs are appearing with such frequency right now, companies becoming desperate for workers in so many different job categories, it would be impossible to even frame how many, but... Speaking of framing, anything in construction (laughs) workers are being looked for. Anything in the food industry. Um, Even the stories about Uber and Lyft. Okay, so my experience with Uber and Lyft involved driving for Uber and Lyft for a TV special. And I actually enjoyed driving for Uber and Lyft. And then as a rider for years, all the time, I found more and more situations prior to the pandemic where I did the calculations. It was much cheaper for me to get around by Uber and Lyft than it was for me to rent a vehicle. And in fact, I used to rent a minimum 30 rental cars a year. And in 18 and 19, the number I rented fell precipitously as I migrated to uber and lyft i didn't have to worry about parking anymore and things like that and so today the whole thing has turned crazy i've talked about the problems with car rentals that there's an extreme shortage of rental cars available prices going up and all that and uber and lyft are having their own issues i took my first post-pandemic flight And my son and I were at the airport, no rental car booked. And I was like, oh, we'll just take an Uber or Lyft. So I pull up Uber and a ride that historically had been about $32 was posted at 85. Lyft was posted at a more reasonable 46, but we had to wait almost a half hour for a driver. And all over the country, Uber and Lyft are having extreme shortages of drivers to the point that the pay levels for drivers in many cities going way up. If you used to drive for Uber or Lyft and said, hey, I'm just not making enough money doing this, you may find that if you reactivate that you'll be really pleasantly surprised how much more money you can earn with either of them right now. You may also receive depending on the market you live in, you may get um, driver bonuses for, they always had these, but for so many rides carried in a week or a month, the big change is the number of bonus dollars you can get much, much higher. So, who's paying for all that? The riders. And just as I found that I was paying a lot more for what turned out to be a Lyft ride compared to before. And if I just clicked on Uber much, much more, this is an experience riders are having around the United States. And supply and demand will come back into sync. But the reality is Uber and Lyft are a great economic indicator because you see with their pricing what's going on with employment or unemployment. And the fact that they're having to boost pay and in turn taken more from the riders, is a clear economic signal that we are moving into labor shortage and a lot of jobs. If you are in a job that you feel dead-ended, you're not making the kind of money you want, in so many different categories, you're going to find that getting out there and seeing your value in the marketplace could reward you with a significantly fatter check. And one other thing, last couple of years, particularly last summer, teenagers, there was no work for teenagers last summer. And the summer before, it wasn't a great summer for teenage employment. This summer, I mean, if you got a pulse in most cities, a teenager can have multiple job offers without even putting in... A great effort right now. I'd rather you put in a great effort and uh, practice interviewing with a parent or something, and know how to dress for an interview. All those things, but right now, probably don't even have to do any of that stuff to get work.
1: All right, Clark, We're going to get to some questions. Joseph in New Jersey says, you frequently mention the benefits of using a fiduciary financial advisor so that you'll know that the person managing your money must make decisions in your best interest. Is there a similar person in the travel industry, a travel agent who you know will provide vacation and cruise options for you based on your desires and budget, and not because they make more money by directing you to certain travel companies?
0: Joseph, there is no fiduciary equivalent in the travel business. But what you want to look for is somebody with a CTC designation, Certified Travel Counselor. That's somebody who is knowledgeable and experienced. And with a really capable travel agent planning a trip for you, you will pay them an hourly rate. And you ask the question specifically, how do they decide among suppliers? And what influence does any commission earned have. You just ask the question straight out. And you will not be able to have a system like you have with a financial planner where you can specifically hire somebody who enters into the legal obligation to you of being a fiduciary, legally required to put what's in your best interest first. Um, With the travel agents, though, with the CTC someone who really understands the idea of long-term relationships with a customer, they're not going to book you with a crummy supplier or a crummy place just because they're offering what are called overrides, which is bonus commissions or what in other industries would be considered to be a kickback. So I don't have a solid line I can paint for you in this area. I can only give you a direction how to get somebody who will do it the right way.
1: Lisa in Illinois says, I know you've talked about staying away from Venmo, Zelle, and Cash App, but sometimes it's unavoidable. In those cases, which one do you recommend as the safest?
0: But based on the complaints of the last year that I've seen tracking with different sources, right now, stay away from the Cash App. That's the one that has had the most customer no-service problems. Uh, historically, I would have said Zelle was that, but with any of these, as long as you stick to only paying friends, family, or really trusted individuals or organizations, you'll eliminate a lot of the issues. But the most important firebreak with any of these apps is you tie it in, as we have done in our household, to a separate bank account that is only used for this purpose of paying with one of these apps, and we keep a small amount of money in that account so that that's all that's at risk if our app was compromised.
1: Tom in Colorado says, we always hear about 401k and 403b accounts. What is a 401a? My son started his first job out of college and now has a 401a administered by TIAA. It is taxable and is mandatory, but with a 5% contribution on his part, he gets an awesome 10% match, so one can't complain much. The investment choices seem reasonable, but how is a 401A different from the others, and are there pitfalls to be concerned about? He also has an optional 403B Roth available, but I think he's going to supplement it with a Roth IRA for now, as well as his new HSA account.
0: A 401A is employer-sponsored. And it allows you to contribute either dollars or percentage based from your employer. Is in your son's case, ten percent from the employer, from the employee, or it can be both of them. And the it's kind of like it's enough of a, a similar thing to a four hundred one k that. I don't even know why it's its own separate category. Somebody who works in plan administration could explain the difference between a 401A and a 401K. I'm not aware of what the substantial difference would be because when you change employers, you can roll that money into another qualified plan. Uh, you, can, you can do with it pretty much the flexibility you would have with others so I'm stretching to try to think what would be any meaningful difference between the two that would matter to you as an employee of a company and I don't know that there's any significant thing other than a 401a is usually going to be with a government agency instead of a private employer. I want to thank you in advance for leaving a review of our podcast if the app you listen on allows for it. also really appreciate it when you share our podcast with your friends. And if you don't like what I'm doing, share it with your enemies, baby. And thanks for listening.